Fintech is a global trend at the moment, and having people who truly understand it is as valuable as ever. With a bachelor's from Stanford and a Harvard MBA under her belt, Ana Cristina Gadala Maria certainly fits this description. Ana leads Fontes, a seed stage fund for Latin America fintech at QED, and is a supporter of the LATAM ecosystem through Mosaico, a content platform. She's passionate about democratizing access to financial services, a strong believer in entrepreneurship as the driving force behind transformative solutions, and an advocate for female and diverse founders. In this episode, Ana shares why fintech is so hot in Latin America and globally, how to cater to the underbanked and underserved, her opinion on the future of embedded finance, challenges that founders starting or scaling financial services should be aware of, and how Fontes works within QED. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Running the leading startup community in Latin America costs money, but some people are taking notice. So I want to take a minute to thank our early supporters. At Viva Real, we were an early customer of Zendesk. Other companies like Nubank, Loft, RD Station, they all use Zendesk to keep their customers happy. Zendesk for Startups offers Zendesk software for customer service and sales for free for six months. To learn more, head to zendesk.com slash startups. Also, we're really happy to inform that Latitude Fellows now have access to a ton of extra exclusive benefits on top of the six months free, thanks to Zendesk's support of our community. Go to latitude.com to learn more about the Latitude Fellowship and apply. I learned the hard way that lo barato sale caro. If I had worked with Gunderson from the beginning, maybe our company wouldn't have had to pay $100 million in unnecessary taxes because of our corporate structure. We're lucky to have their support along with Kerry Olson and Bronstein Zilberberg in developing one of our first products, Latitude Go. We want the process of incorporating companies in Latin America to be 10 times cheaper and twice as fast. If you're starting a venture-backed company, you can check it out at go.latitude.com. I've been banking with Silicon Valley Bank for over a decade as one of their first customers in Latin America. They're committed to the region and have made great introductions over the years. We want to thank them for their support of Latitude. To learn more, visit svb.com. Now on to the episode. AC, it's great to have you on the podcast here. If I can call you AC, I guess that's what your friends call you, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Brian, for having me. And it's it's great to be here and excited to be part of the Latitude community. Yeah, no, it's been great. And you've been a wonderful, you led a session in one of the previous cohorts on fintech. And there's obviously a wealth of knowledge when you look at QED Fontes as two primary investors in the region that focus on fintech. So I guess that, that begs the question, why is fintech so hot in Latin America right now? Yeah, I mean, I think I think fintech is hot sort of globally. Um, but I think in, in Latin America specifically, I'd say there's sort of two parts to two parts to it. And I'll answer first sort of why is fintech so interesting in Latin America and B is sort of why now and why is this all sort of booming at this moment? And I think to start with, you know, if you look at the Latin American market and sort of why is fintech attractive, there's a couple of, you know, interesting dynamics um, that objectively just make it sort of an interesting market for an investor and for startups. To start with, you know, I'll say pretty generally, if you look across Latin America, the the financial services sort of sector has been pretty consolidated, the banking sector historically, right, where, you know, a couple of the banks have 
probably 70 or 80% market share um, in terms of, you know, the transactions and financial services. So there's been sort of little, I would say, incentive to innovate on behalf of the banks and, and just a very consolidated um, system. On the other hand, you also have what results in sort of a very profitable system for the same reasons, right? There's the, the same banking sector. They're sort of ha- have had market share for a while. Um, it's very profitable. So there's there's what this results in is sort of, I would say suboptimal customer experience, customer experiences, more expensive products because there is sort of little to no innovation going on. And then there's also sort of this sector of the population that has a lack of trust in financial institutions for the same reasons, right? Like they want nothing to do with the, the incumbent banks because historically they've had poor experiences, they've had expensive products. Um, and so there's sort of this this rise or this whole sector of um, informal sort of financial systems. And so when you look at this sort of zooming out, right, you have on the one hand, the consolidated incumbents. On the other hand, you have these informal systems. um, And then you have a large population that's still transacting in cash and still relatively underbanked. Um, and, And so there's just a lot of opportunity to actually disrupt that and provide with sort of very little, I guess, low barriers uh, to provide a better customer experience, uh, more inexpensive products, products that actually cater to the underbanked or meet people where they're at um, versus trying to sort of imitate what exists. Um, And I think all of that just provides like a a very large market opportunity um, because there has been, you know, little to no innovation in the past. Um, But then also sort of a very exciting time for um, startups and entrepreneurs to actually start to address some of these um, some of these products and services in a different way. So I would say sort of the opportunity has been there historically. um, And I think that's what makes it sort of attractive uh, as a market. But then on the other side, you have the the timing question and sort of why are we seeing this boom now? Um, and I think there's a couple of factors here that are probably are not necessarily unique to Latin America. Um, some are, but I'd say, you know, one is, is definitely COVID um, and the rise of sort of e-commerce and digital transactions. Like this past year has just forced a shift in behavior and consumer behavior that usually is a lot more difficult to achieve, right, in terms of penetration of of mobile apps, of smartphones, of people actually, you know, being comfortable using their money online or paying online. Um, so there's that aspect of it, which has sort of been a trend globally. Um, then I th- I'd say specific to Latin America, there's also changing regulations. So I think especially in Brazil, right, you've seen over the past year, um, the implementation of PICS. You've seen Colombia and Mexico start to implement some fintech specific regulations, all of which sort of are I would say um, sort of incentivizing or catalyzing more innovation um, and sort of newer business models. Uh, and I'd say, you know, PIX in particular has the interesting dynamic that it's sort of mimicking, I would say, the cash dynamic where, where it's like real-time payments um, and and you see a lot of sort of populations that weren't previously transacting digitally um, now able to access it through PIX. So there's the regulation aspect. Um And then there's, I would say, sort of the evolution of new types of businesses and customers, right? I think as we see sort of more startups, more businesses, um, different generations sort of leading businesses, there's also a demand for just newer services um, and different types of, uh, I would say, payments, lending, financing, um, where there's just a more openness, I would say, to to these financial uh, disruptors or financial services. And so I think all of that is leading to a fintech boom in Latin America, right? The combination of it's an attractive market to start with, but then 
you know, you're actually starting to see consumers shift their behavior and being willing to um, adopt and transact online, um, plus this evolution of the types of, of needs and businesses that are existing. So I think all of that has sort of made this a very exciting time to be, I would say, both a fintech founder um, and a fintech investor, for sure. You're right at the the heart of it. And you were QED and Fontes was pretty early in this this whole like trend explosion of fintech globally has been happening for a couple of years, but been a global investor and Latin America seems to be been the right place at the right time. I was just kind of thinking about fintech. It's obviously a pretty big space, right? It's kind of I talk about prop tech because that's kind of uh, an area that I have a lot of expertise in. And I think the first investment I ever did with QED was in Quinto Andar. Uh, we co-invested in that. And that's kind of the intersection of prop tech and fintech. But when I think of prop tech, I think of like there's the for sale, there's the short term rentals, there's the long term rentals, there's mortgage finance, there's like there's all these different aspects of, of prop tech. How do you in your mind kind of group the fintech world You've got the neobanks. You're putting you on the spot here with it. How do you, in your mind, do you just kind of break down the different elements of fintech kind of internally? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think it's important to to dig into what exactly is fintech. Um, I think the way that, you know, the way that we think about it is sort of you have the the transactions that need to happen from a financial perspective. So I think historically, if you look at where has fintech sort of, where have we seen more innovation in fintech in Latin America? There's lending is one big category. There's payments as another category. And then there's banking, which is essentially sort of holding, you know, your being able to transact online and being able to sort of store, uh, store your money um, at a either digital or physical bank. Um, but those are sort of the three buckets, I would say they're sort of lending payments and banking that we've seen sort of more players um innovating. And I would say there's still a lot of room to do those transactions. Um, but then fintech can also be considered uh, as, you know, business services, right? If you look at, for example, uh, business lending, accounting, procurement, everything that a business needs to do from a financial perspective um, is one other one sector. There's insurance, um, which, you know, can be considered fintech um, and, and others may not consider it fintech, but there is sort of that financial services aspect to it. There's investing or sort of wealth management. Um, and then there's what I what I sort of like to look at as well, which is the infrastructure or sort of the the layers that enable a lot of these transactions to happen. Um, and so when you look at just sort of starting with, you know, what are the main transactions that need to happen, either completing a payment, doing financing or yeah, or sort of banking and storing your 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 capital somewhere, um, there's all these other services that can also sort of support those transactions. And so I think a lot of it is just sort of evolutions or versions of how the each of these take place, right? There can be very specific sort of peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending, there can be um, business uh, banking, there can be sort of vertical banks for very specific segments. And so I think if you look at just those sort of three building blocks where it's, you know, payments, lending, and banking, you can see sort of the evolution of a lot of these things. Um, and, and just how they are become interpreted in businesses is actually where you, it starts to become interesting, right? And and to your point, sort of the prop tech pieces, we've invested a lot in prop tech as well at QED, sort of both in Latin America um, and a, I would say globally. Uh, we have a, a couple of investments as well in the US and in the UK in that, in that theme. Um, and I think it's sort of the interpretation of, right, how do you pr provide 
either financing for people to be able to, you know, purchase a home, um, to move out of a home, whether you provide sort of mortgage lending. Um, and so there's, there's, I think, different evolutions of the types of financial services and transactions that can actually enable you to run your business. Um, but it really comes down to, I think, those, those core things. And it's just a matter of how, how it evolves and how it's interpreted um, in different business models. I agree. It's a big space, right? There's, there's a lot of activity and, and there's these big fat incumbents that have been around and uh, haven't had the same motivation to innovate. And so with yeah. that presents incredible, incredible opportunity. Now, as, as kind of, you mentioned also infrastructure and we invested in Pomelo together, which was a LF2. Uh, and, you know, I think that's a good segue into, you know, they've got a great team. If I look at the last decade there's been this explosion of valuations that have come from pretty high numbers. And do you think this is because the ecosystem is more mature or is the ecosystem growing because bigger investors are looking at the region? What do you think the key elements and where are we in that cycle in, in, from your point of view? I would say it's, it's probably a combination of both. Um, so I do think there's sort of the fundamental um, there's there's fundamental reasons for valuations increasing. And I think, uh, you know, just in terms of we have, I think, better talent, um, better businesses, uh, and all of that comes as a, as a function of the ecosystem maturing, right? I think as people have sort of um, actually grown and scaled businesses, uh, we have talent that is sort of coming back um, and and sort of starting new businesses. Uh, and, and we see sort of the opportunity from a market size perspective, um, that's definitely there. But I also think in terms of, you know, more investors are looking at the region and, and more global investors um, that historically sort of haven't looked at the region or haven't invested in Latin America are starting to see, you know, a both the success cases um, of, you know, unicorns that are coming out of Latin America and sort of actual, you know, noticing that there is a real opportunity. Um, so, so investors are starting to, to notice that, but also, you know, global investors oftentimes come with larger, I would say pockets um, or bigger funds that maybe historically the region hasn't had. And I think all of that sort of is putting, um, a lot of pressure on the valuations as well, because, you know, for, for a fund and I, and I can speak from it, um, from QED's perspective, cause we're a global fund as well. Right. And you see sort of the different dynamics of various ecosystems for somebody that historically has only invested in the U S or, you know, in, in larger markets, um, or more developed markets that is now seeing this also sort of pressure on valuations and, and very sort of irrational, prices, I would say, in the startup ecosystem, you take a look at, you know, a less developed region that's also attractive, like Latin America, and you start to see where it becomes interesting to start investing um, in the region as well. And so I think as more of those investors, as more capital flows, um, I think the the valuations definitely become, I would say, distorted. Probably, you know, a function of that is a bit a bit realistic in terms of just there is a real attractive opportunity there. But I do think we're starting to see, especially in the last year, more of this sort of uh, inflation in valuations um, because of all of this, you know, global capital starting to look at at the ecosystem as well. It's a win for entrepreneurs. I mean, if you can raise more money and give up less equity and, you know, yeah. and, and build a lot of value, I think it, there's no shortage of value to be created, too. So right. it's not like you're pricing yourself out, raising a significant, you know, seed or series A round because you've got a lot of upside typically still because we're so early in the in the right. cycle. And, and you'd mentioned some of the building blocks um, to be solved for fintech 
And, and I just would love to get your perspective for any listeners also. What do you think are the, you know, the opportunities? And this is a question that we get sometimes is like, we've got a handful of great entrepreneurs that have been at top, you know, tech companies and they're kind of in that exploratory mode to figure out what problem they want to solve. And fintech, obviously people gravitate towards fintech. Um, what are those building blocks that are, are yet to be solved for fintechs in Latin America to have uh, the necessary infrastructure? I think that's probably where I see still the biggest opportunity. So if, I, if we think about sort of what areas have seen more innovation, I kind of alluded to this a little earlier is, you know, payments, lending, banking, you, you look at the, you know, the unicorns, you look at the big businesses that have been built, and a lot of them are sort of, you know, kind of replacing existing incumbent transactions and 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 lending. Um, and I would say sort of as we move into sort of phase two of what that looks like, um, I think there is still sort of the opportunity, A, to see more innovation across those fronts on sort of specialized versions of those different products, right? Like having a vertical focus of, you know, lending to a specific um, type of consumer or creating, you know, a payment processor um, for a specific type of business um, or the bundling of products across categories. I think we still haven't seen much of that. And then I would also say where we've seen historically less I would say big businesses being built is on on the ones that I sort of um, spoke to earlier, right? Investing, um, and there's different reasons why these haven't sort of taken place in the past, but investing in wealth management, um, insurance is another one that I think still has a lot of open space in Latin America. All of the business services, and we've made a couple of investments sort of in the in the B2B space, um, uh, including sort of some some HR companies um, or business payments or business banking. But I think there's still, as I talked about through the evolution of the types of businesses, there's still a lot to be done there. Um, and then finally, the the infrastructure side, which for me is sort of the more, the most interesting part because it really, it doesn't just address current needs, but it also I think is a catalyst for the rest of the ecosystem, right? As you're able to provide, and I think about these as sort of, um, a like like the data data infrastructure, for example, right? Historically, Latin America, uh, it's been very difficult to find uh, or to be able to access a data in a scalable and, and credible way. Um, so, seeing some of the you know data players that are being that are being built, um, sort of, sort of like a Belvo and Matbi and ID Wall, sort of from the from either a digital identity type of validation perspective, but also from a banking perspective and being able to do sort of underwriting in a faster, cheaper, and more trustworthy way. All of that, for example, is a building block that not only sort of serves the needs of current businesses, but also kind of enables other businesses to be built um, because it no longer takes you, you know, a, a million dollars uh, and two years more to build uh, a specific part of your business, but you actually can just plug an API in and now you have the ability to um, underwrite and, and to access your, your customer's data um, in a more scalable way. So that infrastructure side, you know, I think the, the building blocks there are sort of a on the banking as a service um, side where you have sort of core banking services um, like Pomelo, for example, which is the the issuer. Um, there's also payment processors that can be sort of, there's a couple already, but I think there's still, there's still work that can be done there. Um, the data aggregation side, there's also, we've seen some innovation there, but I think there's still, you know, an opportunity to go after that. Um, and I would say sort of 
payment rails is another one, right? I talked a little bit about PICS, um, but that's that's in Brazil. I think in other countries, there's still the opportunity to also sort of build out different payment rails um, to actually enable either real-time payments um, or, you know, uh, I guess a variation of that um, that's more um, resemblant of the current needs or of the cash dynamics. So those are some of the areas where I still see a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, like we said, it's an enormous space. Kind of switching gears here, at one point you were looking to start your own fund, be thinking about focusing on financial inclusion. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, before QED, I was looking into starting uh, my own fund called Mosaico Ventures, um, focused on education and financial inclusion. That's really cool. What, what were the empty space, you know, what was the white space there that you kind of thought need to be filled just to kind of pick your brain? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think starting with just the the market itself, as you look at the number of people that are still underbanked and underserved, um, you know, I think there's a wide open space there to actually figure out um, business models that can cater to that customer. I think it's, you know, it's trickier than um, it seems. Uh, and, and I think the key here and my biggest learning was that you know, not every business is suited for venture capital, right? And I think especially as you think about having um, a, a mission-oriented company and sort of starting with financial inclusion um, and actually serving the unbanked or underbanked in a way that is adapted to their realities may not necessarily sort of um, be well-suited for a high-growth mentality um, with the pressure of venture capital, right? So I think there's different types I would say the biggest need is probably more patient capital um, and different sources of capital to actually be able to support some of these businesses. And I think a lot of currently venture-backed businesses actually do a great job of addressing financial inclusion. And I think in general, fintech is lowering sort of the cost of, of providing financial services and access to a broader population. So I think there's definitely as you look at emerging markets and, and markets like Latin America, um, there's an argument and I think a reality that, that any fintech innovation is actually enabling financial inclusion. And I, I totally agree with that. Um, but I also think there's businesses that are sort of specifically targeted for right the bottom of the pyramid um, or for those that are sort of have had um, very limited uh, financial products and services um, that, that don't necessarily that are not going to necessarily mimic the dynamics of a venture backed business. Um, and so I think, you know, there's definitely still a need for, um, I would say, uh, probably products and services that are adapted that meet consumers where, where they're at in terms of, you know, understanding what are the informal financial systems that they're using, whether it's tandas in Mexico, right. Whether it's um, different types of lending or, or building trust uh, with that customer. Um, but I also think that on the flip side, there there's also a need for, you know, capital that that adapts to those business models and that actually sort of is aligned on the mission side of things um, rather than rather than the venture capital necessarily. Um, so that's sort of how, how I see it. Um, and I think that we, we do start to see a lot more innovation um, as as some of these enablers and, and sort of building blocks that I alluded to start being built. Um, you can actually start to create, you know, a lot more. Uh, interesting business models um, that are sort of more cost effective and uh, broaden access um, in, a, in a much bigger way. Um, and I think that that's sort of what's particularly exciting to me is just seeing how this ecosystem will evolve to actually be able to serve the underbanked profitably and in a, in a way that aligns sort of incentives. 
Clearly, like if you look at the size of the population in Latin America, unfortunately, there's a pretty big swath of people that are unbanked or underbanked. Yeah. And so just from a market sizing standpoint, it's it's it seems like a lot of fintechs have not really addressed that yet. Like most most fintechs from what I've seen. Um, and so maybe where there's a handful like, you know, Hefa and other ones that are trying to tackle that problem. Uh, and there's others. What are your quick thoughts on just like venture debt for fintechs? Because it's a challenging thing on the lending side. If you want to become a lender and you're a startup and then you have to get, you know, quickly think of like James Sagan over at Architect, who's an LP in our fund. Um, and he's been, you know, doing some early lending out to fintechs. But how are, are those fintechs that are looking at lending how are they taking on debt and what have you seen uh, kind of be the f- effective mechanism to kick that off early on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think that that's probably an area um, where we still, we I think we can still see more venture debt in Latin America. I don't think there's enough of that type of capital for lending businesses, um, for lending startups. Um, but I think, I, I mean, I think there are, there are options um, and I definitely think that um, it's important to sort of find ways to gain traction um, early on, you know, as you validate your hypotheses and your business models um, and getting access to venture debt um, is definitely one way to do that, right? To start validating, even if you don't have sort of the ideal terms from the start, um, I think it's it's more important to, um, or the ideal sort of, or if it's an expensive sort of source of source of debt, I think it's more important to sort of align on on terms and being able to gain traction um, to start validating those hypotheses. And then you can always sort of refinance and, and get access to different type of debt. Um, so I think, I mean, I think there are options and we've worked with, you know, a few funds um, it, that, that do debt and that work with our startups. Cause we do, we have sort of historically funded a lot of um, lending businesses, of course. Um, and so I think it's a great option. Um, uh, but I would say that, that I still think in Latin America, especially local, local debt, um, is still very limited, uh, to entrepreneurs now. Yeah. And it seems pretty early in its cycle, but, um, critical for kind of building a, a, you know, healthy ecosystem. Speaking of just, is every company really going to become a fintech? What's your perspective there for, for embedded finance? Is it better to build or, or, or partner up? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think embedded finance is becoming one of those terms that, that is probably overused at this point, but I still think it's, it's an important one. Um, and one that I'm, as I think about Fontes in particular, one that I'm excited to see more of, um, and you alluded to Quintandad, right? Like that's an example of embedded finance. We see Kavak, um, we see Loft, uh, Nuvo Cargo. Um, there's a ton of, of these types of businesses. Uh, and I think that that in Latin America specifically, it makes a ton of sense, um, especially as you think about, you know, what, whether you're building, even if your business doesn't start in the financial services space, oftentimes, especially as you build out, whether it's a marketplace um, or a business that sort of captures uh, customer data, um, as you think about you know, what you are trying to achieve in the long term, oftentimes there is a space for you to actually provide financial services um, to your customers, especially given the dynamics we talked about in the beginning, um, where customers sort of don't really trust existing financial institutions and are looking for other ways to either bank or, or get finance, etc. Um, there's actually a space for companies uh, where they have different type of brand loyalty or a different type of product to become, you know, the bank or to become uh, the source of capital for for these customers. 
Um, and if you look at some of the bigger, you know, companies that have been built, Kinsan, that is a, a great example, right? The the way that they probably didn't start out thinking with about financing, but as you start building out sort of the big ambitious vision, you realize that you actually need to build, you know, all seven steps of the value chain instead of just one, uh, because just one doesn't make sense if the rest, you know, the rest of the value chain is broken. Um, so I think in in places in, where where there's still so much to build, like Latin America, it makes a lot of sense to have these platform type businesses um, and models that where one of those steps ends up being fintech, likely, um, or financial services. Uh, so I don't think that every company will be a fintech. I do think that every every company could be a fintech, um, and and where it makes sense, and especially in Latin America, I think that's going to start to make a lot of sense where you know, banking and financial services essentially becomes um, sort of more, less consolidated and more distributed into different types of businesses, because that's where the customer loyalty lies, or that's where the data, the data lies, um, that will allow you to actually build out better products, services and experiences um, for your customer. So I'm, I'm excited to sort of meet more companies in that space um, and to see, because I still see a lot of verticals um, where there are no big, big players um, that have built this. And so I think there's still a lot that can be done there. In Latin America, kind of the mother of all, uh, or the, the example of this is, you know, Mercado Libre, right? <laughs> they, they were yeah. this marketplace business. Then, you know, they have the Mercado Pago and they became this kind of fintech enabled marketplace to kind of give a nod to our friends over at NFX where yeah. you've got you know, this marketplace piece, you've got financial services and you've got software in it. You know, you kind of all gel together and then you've got this enabled marketplace that, that has yeah. fintech components to it. So I think that's, uh, yeah, it seems like that's a, a, a real opportunity in Latin America. And it is interesting how in Latin America, sometimes you need to build the stack, right? And it, yeah. and it's, you know, Kavak is a great example of that. It's one that I go back to often where they're handling all these different aspects of it and is something that in the US, for example, where you have a more robust venture-backed ecosystem where you have people verticalizing specific services inside the kind of value chain, you don't have the same moat capacity as you do in Latin America if you can build out several yeah. aspects to, to, the, to the value chain. So uh, I think that's that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah. What do you see as the as the, the some of the challenges that founders, you know, starting or scaling financial services should should be aware of? Yeah, yeah. I think I mean I think there's a couple um, in terms of sort of fintech overall. Um, there's obviously you know you need to know what you're. I think what we see in great founders um, is founders that know, uh, have a personal sort of uh, understanding of what they're building. Um, right. So I think knowing the problem well, knowing the problem you're solving, because I think oftentimes there's sort of this, this bigger vision, but you're not really sure of what exactly is the problem you're solving and whether it's a problem at all. Um, so I would say a, like being able to articulate and define the problem that you're solving um, and the market that you're solving it for. Um, I think one challenge is oftentimes the sort of, cross-border um, that you need to believe in Latin America, right? Like I think Brazil makes a lot of sense as a market um, by itself and Mexico. But then once you start looking at sort of the smaller markets, you need to believe that, that you know, in order to, um, for it to make sense, for example, as, a, as an investment or to scale, um, that you can actually translate the problem across countries. And I think oftentimes, um, you know, people are very focused on the problem in their specific country and it's not oftentimes, um, actually that scalable cross border. So I think A is, is actually the ability to scale and it's easier said than done for sure um, in terms of actually being able to bring your business from one market to the other. Um, so I would say sort of 
you know, get finding ways to validate those hypotheses and finding ways to sort of, um, I guess, just figure out whether your problem is scalable from one country to the next um, is one is one problem or one challenge um, that I that I've seen. Um, I think the other is sort of lack of trust. I think you know a lot of a lot of fintech businesses in Latin America are dealing with this uh, lack of trust towards financial institutions that already exists, and so being able to build that trust is actually a pretty big challenge and barrier to overcome. Because as much as you can have sort of an objectively better product and experience, if the customer doesn't trust your brand and doesn't trust your product, then you're going to have a really hard time actually getting getting that adoption, um, especially at a larger scale. So I would say even from early on, like starting to build that trust with the customer, um, I think is, is, a, is a really important thing to focus on. Um, and then I would say the third uh, is probably just sort of the mix of channels and acquisition strategies so sort of customer acquisition can be a big a big challenge um and i think oftentimes from sort of your very first sort of pilot phase to a scalable uh model is when you when you actually figure out maybe in the hard way which are the more expensive channels and which is actually the more um I guess, sustainable way of acquiring your customers. So understanding really well what your go-to-market strategy is going to be, um, whether or not you implement it sort of from day one, um, but just knowing, you know, where where your margins lie, where your customers lie, and how much it costs to acquire them, um, I think is something that, that founders need to focus on more, um, especially as they're starting to build out. Um, so, so I think those are some of the things that I would highlight. Great points. I, on the first one, how do you see startups going out and building trust? Like what is, what is the factor? Cause it's, it is so critical if you're, you're talking about people's money, right? So yeah. when you're talking about when there's money involved here, like people obviously take that seriously and there's already a distrust of financial institutions for decades. If you look at pretty much any country in Latin America, what yeah. are the things that have been effective there? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, it, I think it's a combination of things um, that can be effective. Uh, and I think it really is, dependent on um, the the startup and whether you're sort of a pure fintech play, whether you're, as we talked about, the embedded finance play and you're starting from a different place with customers. Um, and I think that's an important point in terms of just where you're starting with customers um, and the, the stickier your product can be, sort of the more you can actually resonate with customers and, and build up. So I would say a strategy that I think is generally effective in businesses is just to start with, with a wedge, right? Like the first product that's going to get your customers, it's going to a, like allow you to understand your customers better B start to gather, you know, more data on them from, from a more, from the perspective of wanting to understand them um, and understanding what their, what their behaviors are. um, But also being able to personalize afterwards, you know, right. Like products for them and for their needs. Um, I think oftentimes like what we've seen is that, you know, financial institutions don't take the time to build for a specific customer, a specific customer need. So I think part of it is marketing and the way that you actually speak to customers, right? Like really understanding who your customer, your target customer is, who are those personas, like meet them where they are, speak to them in the language that resonates with them um, because that hasn't been done, right? Historically. So as soon as a brand or a you know, an, an institution or a, a different startup kind of comes and speaks your language, um, that's going to be a, a really big differentiator just in terms of getting customers to pay attention and to actually be able to start building that that loyalty. So I think it's a combination of like, A, marketing um, and speaking to customers in a language that they understand and, and that meets them where they're at. So understanding their needs. 
and B, actually building out products and services that uh, resonate with them, you know, whether it's, and I think this is where those like verticalized or niche or, you know, specialized products um, become interesting because that's when you really feel like the customer feels like the product is made for them. And then it's going to be that much harder for them to find something similar um, and or to leave you right for, for any of that reason. So I think um, it's, it's partly sort of understanding your customer, meeting them where they're at, um, building products that are, that are right for them. Um, and also I think building with the customer in mind, right? Cause I think at the end of the day, yeah, a business can be focused on, right? Like, like being profitable and how do you grow quickly and how do you 10 X your revenue? But at the end of the day, what you really need to do is, is build with your customer in mind. Um, and that's, what's going to allow you to, to really sort of enable growth. So, you know, I think doing right by your end user, um, I think it pays off much more than sort of taking shortcuts um, for that short-term sort of profitability or revenue um, at the sacrifice of the customer. So if I look at this lens that you described, if I look at Nubank through this lens, I mean, every single point you mentioned, they just delivered like amazingly well, right? Yeah. They met their customers where they're at, they, they, they were able to focus on a wedge by having mm-hmm. a credit card that was better the marketing was brilliant. The communication was brilliant and, yeah. and the brand experience. And so I think that allowed them to open up, you know, ancillary services beyond that. And uh, so it's a, it's a perfect case study to describe what you, you think is important. And, and I would wholeheartedly d- agree. I like that. So that's where your advice on starting out. Let's ask the question of how did Fonte start and talk a, a bit more about what you're trying to achieve here. Yeah, definitely. So Fontes is QED's latest fund um, focused solely on Latin America. Um, and it's, I would say, the earliest we've we've focused on at QED. So QED historically, you know, our core fund um, is mostly sort of seed to series B, but we end up focusing on, on series A mostly. Um, Fontes is actually sort of pre-seed to seed, um, a lot, you know, smaller investments, kind of much earlier stage. Um, and the idea here was, um, you know, you mentioned QED uh, has been present in Latin America for a while. Our first investment was actually New Bank um, in 2014. And so over the past sort of seven years, we've seen the evolution of, of fintech um, and we've seen sort of the opportunity to actually sort of uh, do something at the earlier stages, right? Like as we've seen more entrepreneurs, as we've seen the evolution of business models, um, I think you know, there's an opportunity for us to sort of extend the the work that we're already doing in terms of, you know, covering um, and meeting entrepreneurs at an earlier stage. But I think it's also partly a recognition that fintech is evolving in terms of the types of business models and, and kind of comes in all shapes and sizes to a certain extent. Um, and so Fontes wants to be able to sort of be at the forefront of that evolution um, and start to understand, you know, business models that maybe weren't, aren't sort of core payments, core lending, core banking um, that QED has historically invested in and more sort of understanding, okay, what are some of those embedded finance opportunities or what are some of those um, kind of tangential models that are relevant to fintech, but not necessarily pure fintech um, where Fontes can start to make sense. So to an extent, it's sort of pushing our boundaries from QED's perspective of, you know, what we invest in types of business models, geographies, I would say, uh, you know, we, we've historically mostly invested in Brazil and Mexico. Um, with Fontes, we're hoping to be able to, you know, invest in more of Latin America as well and start to get to know other ecosystems. Um, and so it's, it's partly um, sort of trying to be at the forefront of that, 
ecosystem evolution. Um, I would also say, you know, one of the things that I love most about Fontes is the way that it's structured is essentially, um, you know, part of our capital. So it's a $12 million fund. Part of that capital comes from entrepreneurs um, and sort of founders in the region, you know, some of whom are from our portfolio companies, others who are, you know, successful entrepreneurs um, that are contributing to Fontes um, as a way to also sort of help shape the ecosystem. And so I think a founder that receives an investment from Fontes has sort of the best of both worlds because you have kind of access to QED's global fintech expertise, but also you have sort of the local know-how of founders and entrepreneurs that sort of have um, built something already or have had the experience and can act as sort of, to an extent, mentors or advisors to to the portfolio companies. So I think it's, you know, the, the idea here was to sort of create a community, um, help shape the ecosystem, and also sort of recognizing that, you know, we want to be at the forefront of the next kind of wave of fintech business models and evolution. And it's great. I've been fortunate enough to be able to be an investor in, in Fontes. Um, and uh, and recently, just a couple of weeks ago, Nigel Morris, the founder of Capital One and, and QED and Fontes, uh, he became an LP in our fund too. So there's a lot of uh, opportunities for us to cross paths, support each other, and elevate the ecosystem. So I'm speculating on the name here. Fontes is like spring source. It's like the, the kind of start of it all, which I think yeah. I think is, is a pretty cool name that that uh, that you guys came up with for your fund. Yeah, we're sticking to our Latin roots of at QED. <laughs> totally, that, that's cool. It's a good uh, representation. Um, well, talk about the criteria as you look at making investment decisions. Yeah. So, so Fontes, as I mentioned, is an early stage. Um, so pre-seed to seed, we've invested um, at this point in a couple of companies that are at the PowerPoint stage. Um, so I would say it's more about the team and the market um, than it is about any, you know, necessary traction. Um, and so, you know, the way that we invest is essentially we put up to $500,000 um, in an investment, um, you know, with the possibility of follow-on of a similar size. Um, but really sort of criteria is a strong team. I think, you know, having that founder market fit is really important. Um, and I would say, you know, from our perspective, there's, you know, a couple of, of areas that we know better. There's a couple of teams that we already have known for a while. Um, and as you sort of, it's about building conviction at the end of the day that this is, you know, the right team for the right problem and, and, and enough of a market to build something interesting. And so to the extent that, you know, it's a market that we know um, there is an opportunity in like Pomelo, for example, was one where we had seen the size of the market. We knew that it made a lot of sense for something like this to be built. Um, and we found sort of the right team um, to be building this. I think, you know, that all is sort of part of what goes into our investment decision. Um, but it's really those three things, right? A strong founding team, um, the market, which I'm sure is what all investors say, but at the end of the day is, is true. Um, the market is interesting, attractive, and large. Um, and then I would say it's a validation that the problem exists, right? So whether it's, you know, an, an, a more obvious problem where it maybe takes less, I would say, validation. But I would say, you know, as we look at companies, we're really looking for if you have some sort of validation of your hypothesis, right? Uh, that this is a real problem, that there's a need for it. Um, so having some of that early traction um, can also be helpful, especially to the extent that we as QED or as Fontes don't know the market or the team as well. Sort of having, you know, any evidence either through customer interviews or through actual, you know, revenue and traction. Um, I think 
at the end of the day is like where we get to a point of conviction um, that this is a real problem to be solved, um, that there is a big market for it, and that the, that you're the right team building it um, is kind of how we get comfortable with an investment. And so at what point should founders reach out? When should they start building that relationship? And how do you kind of operate there? And what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, I would say um, the earlier, the better. We'd like to get to know at the end of the day, we're getting to know you as a person, as a founder. Um, and especially at the very early stages when you don't yet have a product built or you have sort of limited traction. Um, a lot of the reason we invest is because we believe in you. Um, and so to the extent that I, you know, I, I lead Fontes alongside Bill Salufo, um, partner at QED, uh, to the extent that we can get to know you as people um, and kind of understand how you operate, how you build teams, how you solve problems. Um, and that obviously, you know, with time um, is is sort of probably more, um, you can build more of a lasting relationship that way. Um, so I, I would say, you know, the earlier, the better in terms of getting to know you. Um, it's never too soon to make an introduction, um, to just get to know you, learn what you're building. I'd also say we, we like to use those opportunities, you know, conversations rather than necessarily just a pitch or, or a transactional conversation is actually sort of, you know, brainstorming and helping and seeing how we can be helpful. Um, so I would say kind of take the opportunity, you know, as a founder to also seek out, um, you know, investors in, in that fashion as well. Right. Like not necessarily just for fundraising, but to actually tap into um, their thoughts and advice, et cetera, um, where it can be sort of a win win situation. Um, and so our process is, is essentially that sort of getting to know you, um, we take a couple of weeks to, you know, to actually, um, be able to build conviction and, and make a decision. Um, and the best way to reach me is, um, you can find me on Twitter as AC Gadala. Um, and my, you can, my DMs are open in that way. Nice. That's, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah. It's funny because I, I see a lot of, uh, investors like only warm intros from like, this super uh, source that, and you're, you're just like, hit me up on Twitter. I'm here, which is the job of a GP, right? Like it's to find good investments and talk to. So I think that the, the, the way the game is being played is changing. And it's, it's not only about this ivory tower that, you know, investors sit in that you have to figure out how to, how to get to the, the investor. I think it's, it's a privilege as an investor to be able to talk to great entrepreneurs. And of course, not every investment is going to, you know, or every pitch is going to result in an investment, but to the point you just mentioned, you know, I think that my advice to founders is to look at the the process of talking to investors differently than just a transaction and getting money. I mean, the reality is 85, 90, 95% of conversations with investors don't result in an immediate check. Um, but that means that you should take that time and figure out, I mean, there's a lot of pattern recognition that you're seeing. You know, you've been focusing on fintech now for years. Uh, the firm has seen things globally. So, there's so much to learn in these conversations. And I think I got smarter over the years of when I was in the fundraising process and talking to a lot of bright people that had unique perspectives and challenged me. And, and so I, my advice to founders is to kind of adjust the way you think about the fundraising process and not look at it so transactional, but look at it as a relationship and then an opportunity to validate some different ideas and get different perspectives that can enrich your thinking. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Well, thanks so much for coming on uh, the, the podcast. And it's been exciting to see the journey you've all taken in a short amount of time. When you say our first investment was New Bank, I'd say that you started off pretty solid in 2014. <laughs> it's, you know, typically that's not how, how it goes, but maybe there's some uh, 
special sauce over there at QED and Fontes that allows you to see some interesting opportunities. But it's great to have you on. And thanks a lot for being a supporter of the Latitude community. We benefit from your experience, knowledge, and support. And we're really happy to have you on and, and excited to see what Fontes uh, becomes because it's, it's got such a bright future and, and there's so many great entrepreneurs that are, that are coming online now. So it's going to be fun to see how it all evolves. Yeah, no, thank you, Brian. And, and thanks for everything that you're doing for the ecosystem as well. I, I've loved being a part of, of Latitude and staying close to you and, and meeting all the awesome entrepreneurs that you're supporting. So excited to, to see where it goes as well. Great. Well, vamos Latam and thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Ana Cristina, Principal at QED. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like her. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.